Uh, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are in Ephesians 6, moving on, moving toward the end, but we're in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Americans are, uh, are pretty wasteful. We, we are, we are, we're wasteful, it's okay. We can nod our heads, yes. Uh, and one reason I know this is because uh, my brother and sister-in-law, Dean and Ross, who are missionaries in Wales, um, they, uh, they, you know, they're, they're missionaries in Wales, and, and you don't, you realize how wasteful we are when you end up spending time in another country. Uh, and so for them, uh, they're telling me, like in the UK, everyone has, you know, a trash bin and a recycling bin. But, you know, obviously it's different because here you can pay extra for a recycling bin, but not everyone has one. But everyone in the UK has a recycling bin. And, and here's what's different, too. You know, like once a week, I, in our trash can, like almost always the lid is up, you know, because it's just stock full of trash, you know, and everything. Never is it, like, barely empty. Uh, and so, so typically what happens is you have your trash that comes once a week, and then your recycling bin every other week, after several weeks. For them, it's the exact opposite. Their recycling bin is always filled to the brim, and they come and pick it up maybe a couple of times a week. And then their trash bin almost stays empty, you know, and the, the truck will only come get that once every other week, every several weeks. In fact, what's kind of crazy is you can get bullied for uh, not recycling cycling or throwing away trash. It's funny, my nephew, Tim, who's like this really scrawny, like really nice guy, like really went after this other kid for, I think he threw away a, a plastic straw or something. He's like, you can't do that, you know, that kind of thing. Like, you can get bullied, man. It's kind of crazy. And, and so what I, I have to repress a sense of guilt, though, because we don't recycle. Uh, recycling is great, though. I, I wish we could. Just, you know, we'd rather spend, I don't know, the extra amount, whatever it is per month, to go eat out <laughs> rather than recycle. Okay, uh, but recycling is great, right? Because it takes it takes something like that's usually worthless or, or useless, and, and you make it into something that's good or useful again. Uh, right? So I don't know how many of you know uh, Chip and JoJo, uh, but they had this show called The Fixer Upper, and what would they do? They'd take these old ugly, useless houses, and they would fix them up and make them into these like spectacular homes. Really, really beautiful homes. And, and many cities are, are, are taking like their downtown areas and, and putting new initiatives into revamping downtowns and bringing businesses down there. So this idea of taking something old and useless and, and taking it, transforming it into something new is, is called redemption. It's called redemption. Redemption is the act of taking something that is useless or worthless, hopeless or mundane, and, and making it into something different altogether. So redemption takes what is loveless, unlovely, and makes it lovely. Uh, today I'm actually going to approach this text a little differently than I normally do. Different approach and and I'm going to explain. I'm going to save a lot of the explanation of this passage for later. So normally I do a lot of explaining first, and then I get into application. But I'm going to save a lot of explaining later, and and that will become clear why I do that as we go on. But but I'm going to focus this passage 
focus on two areas of life that Christ redeems. His redemption of what is useless, worthless, hopeless, mundane, and loveless, and making it lovely and purposeful. So let's see these two areas of redemption that Christ takes, that he redeems. And let's look at chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The first area of redemption is is Christ's redemption of work. Christ's redemption of work. So obviously, we no longer have slavery as an institution here. And I'm like, again, I'm not going to talk about the slavery part until later explaining it. Uh, but the closest thing that we have to apply in this text is to work. It's to work. So uh, I've talked before about the Chinese kids that I teach English to online. And I feel really bad for them because they don't have like Saturdays and Sundays. Like anytime I ask them, like, are you excited for Saturday? They're like, I'm, I'm going to do homework. You know, like, what are you doing this weekend? Homework, studying, lessons. Like even like over summer break, they have lessons and they're doing homework and everything. It's like they're working all the time. Uh, if Loverboy was a band in China, their song wouldn't be everybody's working for the weekend, but everybody's working on the weekend. Everybody's working. Okay, so that's usually our goal. That's usually our goal, though, right? Is to get through another week of work and make it to the weekend. Or if we're career-centered, our goal is to work hard as possible to make it up the ladder. And so typically our, our inclination is to make work a means of something else. It's, it's a means of getting to something else, accomplishing something else. We work to make money. We work to make it to the weekend. But Christ redeems work. And he redeems work because it's no longer what we work for, but who we work for. It's no no longer about what we're working for, but who we are working for. Look at verse 5. Paul addresses bond servants. It's another word for slaves. Bond servants is a good word, though. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So remember, Paul, just like he's addressing uh, husbands and wives and children and fathers, he's addressing Christian bondservants. These bondservants are are Christians. And and remember, though, that Christianity is still very new. Well, we have the advantage of of 2,000 years of church history of figuring out, like, what to think. So imagine you're this slave, and you become a Christian, and you... You have a new Lord, you have a new master, a new identity, you're free, right? As a slave, you're wondering, what does that mean for me, right? Am I, am I uh, free, because I'm free in Christ, do I now leave my earthly master? 
What does this mean? But Paul says, obey your earthly master. Obey your earthly master. So, so what's interesting here, though, is that Paul, that same word that he uses for master, is the same word uh, in this very passage that he uses for Christ. It's the same exact word. So it's a play on words to show that your obedience to your earthly master is part and parcel of your obedience to your true master. Just like children obeying their parents, you're obeying your parents because that is how you obey God. You obey your master because that is how you obey God. And so Paul saying, obey them with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. As just as you would to Christ. So what this means is, is that every task becomes a task unto Christ. How does this transform work? Because every task that you do becomes a task that you render unto Christ. One commentator said, any and every task, however menial, falls within the sphere of his lordship and is done in order to please him. So you'll often hear the sacred and secular divide, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with using those terms, right? When I talk about trying to get a part-time job, I say in the secular world. Uh, but really, there's in reality, there is no secular and sacred. Everything that you do is a sacred task. So what this means is that not only is every part of our work meaningful, but we do it Wholehearted. Paul continues in verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever taken a personality test before, and you should, uh, because uh, I've learned a lot about myself and learned a lot about Mallory too, but my personality is very much as a people pleaser. I'm what's called a peacemaker. Let's keep the peace. Let's avoid tension. Let's avoid controversy. Everybody just stay calm. And and Mallory has, she loves strong opinions, right? She loves coming on strong. And I'm always like, well, let's see it from their point of view, you know, that kind of thing. We have a really, uh, it's great for marriage. Uh, But the point is that we can't work wondering what will other people think? We can't work uh, hoping hoping to, to please everybody. Of course, we want to do a good job, and it's good to get praise, but that can't be why we work. We can't work in order to please everybody or to get praise from everybody. A clean toilet is clean because Christ is glorified by clean toilets. We make a sale because Christ is glorified by good products. We bale hay because that's it's not our field, but Christ's field that needs bailing. So Christ redeems work and he makes it meaningful makes it wholehearted and enthusiastic. Look at verse 7. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
That, that term goodwill, uh, it signifies a, an eagerness, right? A zeal to do your work. And so the thing is, thing is though, work is often painful. It's part of the curse. When God cursed the ground, he cursed work. So work is painful. Work is drudgery. But our obedience to God is done through eager work, happy work, joyful work. So, so how we treat customers or how we install HVACs or how we check the quality of milk is to be done with a joy because you're not rendering your service to a company or to a corporation or to the man, but to Christ. Do it with enthusiasm and eagerness. Lastly, Paul says, do all of this, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. These slaves uh, in Paul's day would have done many, many, many tasks that would go unnoticed or unrecognized. Uh, I'm learning uh, how to be a good husband, I think. Uh, but it still baffles me how little I notice when our house gets clean. Like, I'm like, I'm still so dim-witted that I don't notice it and, and give my wife the praise that she deserves. And I can't tell you how many times I fail to tell Mallory how good our house looks. So she has, so what do you think about the house? You know, and by the time I say, oh, it looks great, it's, it doesn't mean anything. She had to remind me to say it. But, but clean houses done to the Lord will receive back from him what we spouses fail to give. So, overlooked for a promotion, hard work that went unrewarded, a special favor that didn't get recognized, it is not overlooked or unforgotten by Christ. The work that you do is not overlooked by Christ. And, and if you think getting praise from a person is good, right? It is. It feels good. It's nice. It pales in comparison to praise from Christ. And, and I want you to notice something else about this passage. Right? Last week we talked about children, and children are, are low, low, low on the social status totem pole. Slaves are even below children. Slaves have no status. Slaves are property. But in Christ, social status doesn't matter. The hard work that is done by faith is work that will be rewarded whether slave or free. And that's exactly how Paul dresses these masters in verse 9. Uh, look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So, a lot today you'll hear people talk about how we have like a caste system in America. And, I mean, do with that what you will. But, but I was surprised, again, to use another illustration from the UK, how much the caste system, the class structure exists in the UK. So um, for, it, for exist, example, like, like you can become, like, like you can go from poor to rich 
right? Here, just as you can in the UK. But here, you can move into different social circles. You can have like different elite friends. In the UK, you can go from poor to rich, but you'll never leave your social circles. You guys know Meghan Markle? Uh, the Prince, Prince Harry, right? Married her, and now they're not part of the royal family. And part of that is because Meghan Markle was seen as this outsider. There's no overlapping of these social circles. And Paul blows this out of the water. After addressing slaves and how they are to render service to their earthly masters, Paul says, Masters, do the same to them. You are not to treat them differently because they are of a different social class or status. This would have blown Roman citizens' minds because slaves were property. Masters had all their rights over slaves, and masters would often threaten them with, with beatings or separating them from their family, releasing them from their service and separating them. And so Paul's claim here would have been outrageous. turns the whole system on its head. Both master and slave have equal standing before Christ. And your different social standing has no bearing whatsoever on your status before him. Paul addresses slaves and masters as both ethically responsible members of the body because both are equally slaves under the same master. So what does this mean for work? It means if you employ others, you would treat them as you would treat Christ. Treat them generously and kindly because both of you are accountable to the same Lord. So Christ's redemption of work, this leads to my second point today, Christ's redemption of slavery. I feel burdened, I felt burdened um, coming up to this passage to address slavery, uh, to offer a word that we specifically as American Christians need in our current cultural moment. I have to talk about slavery and race because they play such a significant part of our history. This is an incredibly sensitive topic and passions are always flaring up in these discussions, but my intent is not to offend, but to dissect. My intent is not to offend, but to dissect. And the reason I feel this burden is because our, past, our ancestors, Southern Baptists especially, would use passages like this to justify slavery. And, and it's easy for us to sit in our pews and to think we would never do that. But what we must do is approach this with humility and repentance because American slavery is the great error of our ancestors and it, it cripples Christian witness. The, the German church dissolved because it largely gave way to Nazism. And I believe the American church's witness is hindered because of our historic weakness 
on race and slavery. So, we've been talking about slaves and slavery. So how is Roman slavery, what kind of slavery is Paul addressing? How is it different? And you might say, well, many cultures had slaves. And the first thing I'd say to that is I'm not, I'm not worried about other cultures. I'm worried about us, us, our culture. But secondly, American chattel slavery was altogether different. So first, obviously the Bible doesn't prohibit uh, masters from owning slaves. But it does prohibit man-stealing. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Paul in in 1 Timothy is listing the ungodly, things, characteristics of the ungodly and those who don't inherit the kingdom of God. He lists enslavers and man-stealers. So don't hear me wrong, there was absolutely man-stealing and Roman slavery, but it was largely for people or families who had no chance to survive but to put themselves in slavery. I was talking to John earlier. It's, it's estimated that one in five Romans were slaves, and it's because we have no way other to exist than to give ourselves to a master who will provide for us. American chattel slavery, on the other hand, was entirely based on man-stealing and forced enslavement. My, my point is, American slavery was uniquely reprehensible. Second, Roman slavery wasn't based on skin color. Even if there was man-stealing in, in Roman slavery, it wasn't based on race, but on conquered peoples, right? If, if you're going to do man-stealing, it's because we've conquered these people, we're bringing them home, we're making them our, our slaves. Uh, American slavery, on the other hand, was in entirely based on race. Now, right, you'll hear about Irish slaves. There were. But if you go to Ireland, you won't be able to tell who was a slave and who wasn't. But every black person in the Caribbean and the Americas is here because of slavery. Thirdly, Masters and slaves in Roman slavery were largely together. Did you catch how Paul is addressing masters and slaves together here? They're together. Slaves would live in their masters' homes. They they went to church together. So Paul could address both of them at the same time. They're both sitting in the same pews. But American slavery subjugated their slaves and gave them run-down housing and even churches, we, we would teach them distorted scripture to keep them where they were. So the reason I felt so burdened to address this is because so much of this was done in the name of Christ. I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up with this inherited mindset, and it's largely dismissive. We can't afford to be dismissive or defensive about this. We must weep that this is a part of our history. 
and that the name of Christ is associated with it. We have have to weep over this. So, So the question is, what are we supposed to do in light of this? What do you want us to do? So, first of all, I'm not saying we need to repent of of holding slaves. None of us have held a slave before. We don't need to repent of Jim Crow. But what I am saying is that we need to be repentant over the sins of our ancestors, over the blaspheming of the name of Christ, and over attitudes that we have inherited today. So Jeremiah the prophet exemplifies this in his prayer to God. He says, we acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. We don't lose anything by being repentant. But we have much to lose if we are unwilling. So first, first, being repentant. But secondly, this means, this is related, we own it. We own it. We say, we messed up. We messed up. We didn't do what we were supposed to do, and we name it for what is it what it is instead of trying to defend what happened. We name it. Yes, absolutely it was reprehensible. I have no defense for this. So we we're repentant over it, we own it, and thirdly, we ask, what do we do to move forward? And this is what's most pressing, right? Our cultural moment is one of increasing racial tension. The church should be in the lead of showing what it means to be reconciled and redeemed together in Christ. And this point is important because we like to think of slavery and Jim Crow as I would never do that. And I, I don't see how my ancestors could have justified what they did in that from Scripture. I don't see how that's possible. But one of the biggest takeaways that we have is for us to consider how we might justify something from the Bible that isn't biblical. Because if I'm honest with myself, apart from the grace of God, I absolutely would have done that. Absolutely. I was that. It would have been highly unpopular and have come with a high social cost to stand up against slavery. You guys, you guys saw, remember the Titans, right? Isn't that the movie where they throw the rock in the guy's window? We don't want that to happen to us, so we're not going to do anything about it. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we called to stand up to that is going to be a high social cost? What are we called to stand up to that is very unpopular, where we might be the only ones saying something about it. I think Robert George is helpful in dissecting this. He said to ask yourselves these questions. In leading your lives today, do you stand up for the rights of unpopular victims of injustice whose very humanity is denied, and where you do so knowing... One, that it would make you unpopular with your peers. Two, that you would be loathed and ridiculed by powerful, influential individuals and institutions in our society. 
Three, that you would be abandoned by many of your friends. Four, that you would be called nasty names. And five, that you would be risking, that you would risk being denied valuable professional opportunities as a result of your moral witness. So here's what that means. We don't get to play favorites who we stand up for or give voice to. Christ calls us to stand up for any human that is being dehumanized or overlooked or ridiculed. So search your hearts and your minds for who in our culture is treated this way. The unborn. Right? If you're, if you are in leftist circles, the unborn, very much unpopular to stand up for them. But what we don't see on our own sides as much is standing up for the single mother who feels like the abortion is the only way out. And she shouldn't have done it in the first place. That's someone we stand up for too. We don't want her. Absolutely, we don't want her to get an abortion. Or maybe maybe it means standing up for black people. It means immigrants. It means instead of ridiculing homosexuals, we show compassion to them. It means standing up for and, and going to the drug addicted and the homeless, the elderly, and the nursing homes. We don't get to choose all of them. We're called to stand up for all of them and to to bring the redemption of Christ to each and every one of them. Remember, Christ was ridiculed for eating with sinners. And the people that ridiculed him were religious, conservative dudes. So what this means is we can't let our theological correctness get in the way of unrestrained compassion. Job's friends didn't have it wrong theologically. They got it right, but what they lacked was compassion. The Pharisees, they got so much right intellectually and theologically, but they didn't have compassion. So yes, let's get it right theologically. Let's get our doctrines right, but let us recklessly have compassion on people. We are not allowed to be uncharitable or loveless to anyone. Why? Because, like Paul says here, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So Paul here is turning slavery on its head. He's addressing Christian masters and Christian slaves to treat one another as they would treat Christ. And I hope that you see that eventually masters would go, I can't keep owning a person if I'm to love them freely in Christ. So, so Paul undermines the institution of slavery itself with this very passage. And so when it comes to work, 
when it comes to redemption, when it comes to being repentant and and bringing redemption to others. We use our resources to redeem others because Christ used his resources to redeem us. We use our time because Christ entered into time. We stand up no matter the cost because we have been made rich in Christ. We really don't lose anything with this. Christ came and redeemed you no matter what you did or no matter what you do. In fact, you gave Christ every reason not to redeem you. Every day you give him a reason that he shouldn't have redeemed you, but he chose to love you and redeem you anyway. And we go wayward left and right all over the place, even after we're saved, and he still pursues us, still showers us with grace. Our standing in him has not changed. It should be, but it's not. So Christ redeemed what was unlovable and he makes it lovely. Church, we serve a redeeming Christ. A redeeming Christ. So let's make Christ look lovely to the world. Let's pray. Father God, we so want to be a repentant and obedient people. We may not be guilty of racism or owning a slave or or anything like that, but God, we want to own the mistakes of our past because only you can take mistakes, only you can take grievous sins and redeem it, redeem us from them. So, Lord Jesus, the only hope that any of, of any kind of reconciliation is redemption in you, and we have that. So, Lord Jesus, let us not stand in the way of that, but let us be open doors for people to enter into and to find how lovely and how beautiful and how good you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you that that we have your word, that that you have revealed uh, doctrine to us and and truth and, and theology. God, we love these things, but oh God, let these truths transform our hearts so that we are like you, faithful and compassionate and kind and gracious. Let us not look like the world, but like the redeeming Savior of the world. Thank you for your grace, Lord Jesus. Thank you for how you are using us and help us to humbly walk with you each and every day in our work, in our our service. All that we do, help us to make you Lord Jesus, look more and more lovely to a thirsty world. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.